Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, my name is Michael Johnston, and this is New Books in Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. Today I have Dr. Tanya Jenkins with me to discuss her book, Doctor's Orders, The Making of Status Hierarchies in an Elite Profession, which will be soon published by Columbia University Press and will be available for purchase June 2020. Dr. Jenkins is an assistant professor at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, in the Department of Sociology. Thank you so much, Michael, for having me on the program. Excellent. So to get started, could you tell me a little bit about uh, how you got started with this uh, topic for research? It's kind of uh, a little bit unique in terms of what I've uh, explored before and and what's out there in terms of publication, because it is in in another field completely, medical field, but it's, it's a sociological take on the medical field. Yeah, so I arrived at this topic, uh, like many researchers do, uh, by by total accident, really. Um, I uh, had to take a qualitative research methods course on political ethnography my first year of graduate school, uh, back when I was at Brown University. And I remember uh, this was a required course. I had no choice but to take it. Um, I had always had an interest in qualitative methods. Um, but I, I didn't consider myself an ethnographer and most certainly not a political ethnographer. Um, I remember thinking to myself kind of annoyedly, uh, you know, I study medicine, not politics. Right. And here I am having to take this course. Um, and I didn't really understand what ethnography was either. I think I had this uh, vague sense, having studied anthropology as a minor in undergrad, that it really involved going to far off lands and becoming one with the natives and um, so I wasn't enthusiastic about this course, um, but of course I had to complete it. And um, the professor at the time, you know, in, in, in his wisdom, helped me see that, you know, there are politics everywhere. There are um, hierarchies and power everywhere. Um, and so might there be a social space that I would be interested in observing those power dynamics taking place? Um, and over the winter break prior to that semester, I had read a couple of memoirs written by physicians. And in particular, there was one that stood out to me. It's a memoir called Intern by a physician named Sandeep Jauhar. It's a, a very honest account of his experience in residency. And one of the things he described in this book is this practice of pimping which is effectively, uh, in in medical circles anyway, um, putting subordinates on the spot. So putting medical students or residents on the spot in a kind of, um, sometimes it can be in a a humiliating kind of way um, and using Socratic techniques to elicit, um, you know, answers to questions. And so I thought that would be a really interesting power dynamic to observe. Um, and I set out to observe it in um, the hospital that I could access uh, through a friend of mine, namely Legacy Community Hospital. And so in February of 2011, I started field work for this course at Legacy Community Hospital, um, studying their internal medicine residency program. And I set out um, to try and, and observe and understand hierarchy in medicine um, through this practice of pimping. 
Um, and it was as early as my first day in the field, um, a resident, uh, you know, pulled me aside and said, if you want to study hierarchy and you want to see pimping, you've come to the wrong place. Um, you know, I remember his quote saying something like, um, you know, where I went to medical school, I never looked my attending in the eye. Um, but here that's not the case. You're not going to find that kind of power dynamic. Um, so uh, instead, what I actually found was very little in the way of, of hierarchy. Um, and in fact, very little in the way of formal teaching, which I, I get at in the book. Um, and I, I did what any good um, junior scholar uh, would do when uh, faced with these surprising findings. I promptly freaked out. Um, I started panicking, worried about having to complete this course on political ethnography. Um, I wasn't seeing what I thought I would gonna, what I was going to see, um, and uh, and it took me a while to sort of take a breath, uh, first of all, but also to take a step back and ask myself, so what is different about Legacy Community Hospital compared to these other hospitals I had read about in books, right? Um, and there were a couple things that stood out once I finally was able to, to take stock of what was going on. The first thing is that Legacy was a small community hospital, right? So they're, uh, you know, it's a very small hospital, um, you know, fewer than, uh, you know, several hundred beds. Um, it's in a low socioeconomic status neighborhood. Um, and it also had very few or at least limited um, medical services on offer. So in, in that way, it was kind of a small town, right? And in a small town, we don't see the kinds of um, hierarchies that we might observe in a larger kind of setting. Um, the other thing about Legacy was that it was definitely, um, by virtue of being a community program, much less prestigious um, than some of the programs I had read about. It had um, it had an affiliation to a medical school. It was a weak affiliation, meaning there really wasn't all that much in the way of contact um, between the program and this medical school. Um, there was certainly less teaching. Uh, going on and it's less formal teaching than what I had expected to see, um, and it, it it eventually took me a uh, a kind of embarrassingly long time to realize one of the starkest differences between Legacy and some of the hospitals I had read about, um, and namely it it, uh, it what I realized is that all the residents in the three year internal medicine program, the categorical program as it's called. Um, were from either international medical schools or had graduated as um, doctors of osteopathic medicine or DOs. Um, the reason that took me so long, so I'm, I, as you might have gathered from the introduction, I'm originally from Canada. Um, I, you know, wasn't familiar with the different kinds of medical professionals and the different trajectories into medicine. And a good proportion, uh, I would say almost, uh, if I'm not mistaken, three quarters of the residents at Legacy were American citizens. So it never occurred to me to sort of reflect on where they had gone to medical school. I just assumed they were American doctors. I knew that there was about a quarter of the residents that had gone to medical school outside of the country as non-citizens. Um, but it, it took me a while, several months, to really piece together the fact that this hospital did not staff a single U.S. citizen medical doctor who had gone to allopathic medical school um, in its three-year program. And so suddenly, you know, I, what I realized is that legacy is what is known on the blogosphere as an IMG, uh, International Medical Graduate, or BO doctor of osteopathic medicine friendly residency program. And as that 
piece of the puzzle started to to form um, as early as the first day in the field. Really, I had started to consider whether you know a comparison site might be in order, particularly because I wasn't seeing the kind of hierarchy I was expecting. Um, and it, upon doing more research, uh, I, I stumbled upon a, uh, a, another internal medicine program in the same area, um, wh- what I call Stonewood University Hospital. And that program, uh, much to my surprise at the, at the time, staffed uh, almost exclusively U.S. MDs. These are U.S. citizens who went to allopathic medical schools. So suddenly this puzzle started to form in my mind, right? So why are these residency programs so segregated along the lines of USMDs, non-USMDs. Um, what impact does this segregation have on the residents' training? How does it influence their mobility moving forward in the profession? And what do the residents make of this type of segregation? How do they make sense of it? And so uh, eventually, as these pieces came together, I decided to set out to study these two programs comparatively over the course of three years. Um, and that's, that's how Doctors' Orders came together. Yes, and I, I think this leads directly to maybe our, our, our next discussion on the topic of status separation. Originally, you were looking at an individual independent, uh, independently, a a hospital called Legacy in your book, and not being able to see the hierarchy within, but uh, instead looking at it as a social structure of medicine and doctors and the education they were receiving. Uh, and and where they're ending up at for their residency, as well as employment afterwards. So so what does status separation mean to you? Yeah, status separation is kind of the one of the key, I think, concepts that I hope comes through uh, through this book, one of the key contributions. And simply put, it's it's the process by which a seemingly homogenous profession, a profession that seems to be all the same, um, at least within the same specialty, right? How that seemingly homogenous profession gets hierarchically differentiated by pedigree into various strata according to the resident's social worth or status. And uh, that process creates, you know, what is what I term horizontal stratification or differences in prestige among trainees in the same specialty. What's interesting or different about status separation is that it's a process that clearly benefits insiders in the profession, namely the elite, namely USMDs. Um, there are uh, other processes that have been sort of theorized about in the sociology of uh, work and occupations. Uh, labor market segmentation uh, is, is a process that has been theorized about before, and it's a process by which um, the labor market is divided up into different segments, right? Into a primary segment where um, there are what what could be construed as an elite, right? Uh, with, with individuals filling um, con- better paid jobs, positions that are considered sort of more uh, advantageous to the worker, and a secondary labor market. And there's also been theorizing about stratification or, or, or segmentation within the primary labor market. Um, but scholars who have written about labor market segmentation really view it as a process that benefits employers. Uh, It's a process that benefits um, capitalism, in effect, right? Because it's something that helps keep workers at odds with one another, and it prevents them from banding together um, and fighting for better work conditions. Um, I I see similarities in the process of status separation, but really this process isn't to benefit capitalism or to benefit employers. The process exists to benefit the elite themselves, to benefit insiders within the profession. 
And how did you see uh, this process benefiting the elites more than the non-elites? And in your case, it would be the U.S. medical doctors compared to those of non-U.S. medical doctors, particularly uh, non-U.S. medical doctors, U.S. citizens going to the Caribbean, but also non-citizens of the U.S. attending schools elsewhere. How, how was how was status and power maintained by the elites? Right. So really what I'm studying are two groups in this book. Um, one group of uh, American citizen um, medical doctors, the USMDs, and then a larger, more heterogeneous group, uh, which I group together as or call uh you know, collectively as non-USMDs. And as you pointed out, those non-USMDs include um, international medical graduates, both U.S. citizen um, and non-U.S. citizen international medical graduates, as well as doctors of osteopathic medicine. And so the question is, yes, how does status separation work such that USMDs uh, are pushed to the top, if you will, of the status hierarchy um, and non-USMDs are pushed towards the bottom? The term status separation, I actually uh, got from a chemist colleague of mine who explained to me that separation in chemistry refers to the process by which a mixture gets reduced to its component parts, right? So we can think about that as happening through external forces like centrifuge, for example, or natural forces like gravity that separates oil and water, right? And in medicine, we assume just as in many other fields, we assume that the force separating out the elite or the cream of the crop, if you will, is meritocracy, right? Hard work, intelligence, dedication. That Those are the reasons why USMDs are at the top of the status hierarchy. Um, what I find in my book is actually meritocracy had very little to do with the process of selecting the elite. And instead, I found that there were other social forces, namely four different social forces in addition um, to eventual differences in merit that can explain some of the processes whereby USMDs form part of the elite within internal medicine. And the first process is broader class inequality. The second is sponsorship. The third are status beliefs, biases, and stigma. The fourth is structural inequality among training programs. And finally, yes, there are eventual differences in merit resulting from these difference, uh, these, these inequalities, which can contribute to status separation in medicine. And the reason why this benefits uh, the insiders, the elites, is that status separation is widely taken for granted within medicine. And what I mean by that is that the sorting of medical graduates on the basis of their medical school of origin has become a kind of standard operating procedure. Um, to the point where match statistics, even for post-residency positions, positions um, for specialty positions after residency fellowship, are reported along USMD, non-USMD lines. So status uh, separation is the process that leads to these taken-for-granted outcomes. But just because they're taken for granted shouldn't be confused with being self-evident. And this is the piece that really benefits, I think, USMDs, that it's under the guise, under the illusion of unfettered meritocracy, that USMDs broadly differentiate themselves as being better than non-USMDs. When in fact, I find that the game of getting into medical school, getting into residency, getting into fellowship is structurally designed to favor USMDs, sometimes regardless of their performance. And so in other words, I find along, uh, along the same lines as, as other scholars studying um, stratification, that meritocracy serves as a kind of well-worn cover 
for other social forces that are at play that can contribute to status separation, namely some of those forces I mentioned earlier, social reproduction, cumulative advantage, and sponsored mobility. And much of this is extremely subtle, as most of uh, sociology is. Maybe the people who have uh, prestige, power, uh, greater merit than the next don't even see the uh, the amount um, of wealth, the amount of power, prestige, the elite, the, the elite that they have. That's exactly right. Uh, you know what I what I found was that consistently structural advantages or structural disadvantages were misrecognized as differences in individual merit, such that if you know someone from a, a you know a, an upper socioeconomic status background who had many opportunities, many resources growing up, um, had the full support of the medical profession behind them and helping them achieve their goals, um, went to very well resourced institutions that created opportunities for them. Um, if that person reached you know uh, the, the 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 top, if they reached their um, their residency of choice or their specialty of choice and fellowship it was often assumed to be the product of their own individual hard work and dedication as opposed to um, sort of recognition being placed on these these structural factors that advantaged them. What I think is important as well is to understand the, the structural forces that exist that have led to passive, uh, a better medical um, training and better schools. So cultural capital and social capital, you, you bring that into your book as well to understand, to help readers and audience members understand that the beginning started far before medical school, correct? That's right. Yeah. I, I took a real, um, a life course approach to understanding trajectories into these different, these two different programs. Um, and so, you know, to understand why Legacy is staffed exclusively with non-USMDs and why Stonewood is staffed almost exclusively with USMDs, um, I really wanted to understand the social origins of the residents in both programs to sort of make sense of why they are where they, where they ended up. Um, and, and as you pointed out, Michael, you know, a lot of this starts um, in very early life. And what I found was that compared to international medical graduates, both U.S. citizen and non-U.S. citizen, as well as doctors of, of osteopathic medicine, USMDs simply just disproportionately came from much higher socioeconomic status backgrounds. And they had much more help from their families in playing the game, as they called it, of getting into medical school. Things as simple as having access to research opportunities early on, having parents that can ferry their kids to um, first aid lessons or cello classes, um, being able to afford to enroll in leadership forums as a teenager, right? They had all of these sort of opportunities for extracurricular activities, as well as support when, um, if and when they failed, right? So they had the resources to pay for tutors, to pay for um, very, uh, um, you know, elaborate assistance to take standardized tests, be it the SATs or uh, the MCAT, right? And, And as I mentioned earlier, much of those advantages, however, were often misrecognized as pure differences in achievement, um, in individual level achievement, when in fact, they really just reflected broader class inequalities. What I also observed is that in addition to much stronger support and resources from families growing up uh, from early social origins, once they got into medical school, and this was a key difference between USMDs and non-USMDs, the US grads were able to 
in a sense, parlay, right? Convert those early resources that they had into additional support from the profession itself. And this is what I call in the, in the book, this is sort of a, one of the key findings of the book. There's a kind of social contract that I saw emerge between USMD trainees and the profession. It's an unspoken, um, although sometimes they spoke quite openly about this contract, uh, it's socially agreed upon series of inputs and outputs or benefits um, of pursuing allopathic medical education in the US. And the idea is that once individuals put in the work and the money and defer gratification and, and you know, put in the dedication needed to gain admission to a U.S. allopathic medical school, the expectation and, in fact, the promise from the profession is that the profession will help ensure that those trainees will get to where they need to go, where they want to go professionally. And so uh, if you look at the numbers nationwide, this wasn't just a pattern at Legacy and at, at um, uh, Stonewood Hospital. Surprisingly, nationwide, surprisingly few USMDs flunk out of medical school once they've matriculated. So nine, over 95% of those that matriculate into allopathic medical school graduate within five years. Um, by comparison, perhaps a profession uh, more familiar to you and I, Michael, um, nearly one-fifth of matriculated PhD students drop out within five years, and almost 31% of them leave after 10 years. So here we're looking at fewer than 5% of medical students dropping out um, within five years. And about 94% of those 95% that graduate from medical school every year match to residency. And so, you know, in the end, for the vast majority of USMDs, it's not about whether they're going to match to residency, but it's really more about where. And what I found was the very clear evidence of the profession helping them get to where they wanted to go, whether it was offering extra tutoring, offering flexibility and scheduling so that if a student uh, fell behind on a test or on an exam, um, that they were able to then reschedule that exam at a later date, um, whether it was just using, as you mentioned, social capital, right, and using connections um, and um, you know, just just uh, social networks to assist students, medical students um, in allopathic schools in the U.S. to get where they wanted to go. Um, really, they're they're getting all of this support from the profession. That notably, a lot of the uh, U.S. international medical graduates, DOs, and certainly international medical graduates are not getting. Particularly in certain specializations, having to go into general practice for residency. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. So we see great patterns of very stark patterns of um, segregation across specialties, whereby certain certain fields like family medicine, internal medicine are disproportionately filled by non-U.S. MDs. Um, other fields, um, you know, one that comes to mind is ear, nose and throat medicine. Um, if memory serves, the the, the the typical number is about 90 percent of positions in that specialty are filled by U.S. MDs. Excellent. And- the um, there was one reference that you uh, put in your book about one of the residents who used the metaphor of the U.S. Navy SEAL versus the National Guard to sort of distinguish the separation between Legacy and Stonewood. Could you talk a little bit more about uh, what she meant when she said the U.S. Navy SEAL and the National Guard? Yeah, this was one of those moments in fieldwork where um, I knew the minute she said that, that this would somehow figure um, somewhere in the findings. The quote was just so powerful um, and really quite evocative of 
the kind of status hierarchies that I was studying, um, the status hierarchies between USMDs who train in university hospitals and non-USMDs who train in community hospitals. Um, and so, you know, it wasn't just this resident. There was a conversation among the residents. This came out in a focus group where Stonewood residents really understood there to be two kinds of internal medicine residents, the kind of um, USMD kind of Navy SEALs, if you will, like them, like themselves that trained at places like Stonewood um, that form a kind of special breed of warrior, if you will, right? They're training in tertiary hospitals. um, They're preparing to handle some of the most complicated patients and situations. Um, They're really viewing themselves as this special breed. Um, And then on the other hand, a kind of reserve army of non-USMD National Guard forces that are training in smaller community hospitals to, you know, take on simpler roles in the profession, um, you know, to treat bread and butter kind of cases in medicine. Um, And of course, you know, she was referring to, to these kinds of differences between, you know, what are, what are putative equals, right? These two types of residency or, or residency programs, but, you know, are, are both in the business of training internists, right? So we're not comparing surgeons to pediatricians. We're, we're comparing internal medicine residents to internal medicine residents. Um, so there's horizontal stratification within internal medicine training. But of course, as I, as I go on to find, we also find evidence of vertical hierarchies after graduation where USMDs go on uh, to disproportionately specialize um, and take on more specialized roles in the profession, whereas uh, non-USMDs tend to remain generalists. Um, and so, so that quote really kind of beautifully captured in a way the very phenomenon that I'm trying to understand. And then what are some of the the larger implications of the social separation uh, between USMDs and non-USMDs as to um, much larger categories as we get into the details of whether they are citizens in in non-USMD programs or non-citizens coming to the States in a variety of ways to practice uh, medicine and to uh, learn medicine? But what are some larger implications beyond medicine that this study could have for other professions? Yeah, you know, I think I think this is, you know, very much a case study for broader patterns happening in, in other professional fields. Medicine is, is by far uh, hardly the only example that we have where uh, of a profession where status distinctions are drawn um, according to educational pedigree among putative equals, right? Among, among individuals studying to become the same thing effectively. Um, so there is a, a number of uh, studies of uh, the legal profession that finds uh, that it, effectively a kind of underclass of attorneys has been proliferating under a pretext of meritocracy, a very similar pretext that we find in medicine, um, when in fact, a lot of the same kinds of uh, processes of cumulative advantage, class inequality, and misrecognized privilege um, are, are undergirding some of those processes. In fact, um, the case of, of the legal profession is a little bit more, um, I would say, extreme than medicine, because what we're finding is the true proletarianization of attorneys being paid by the hour um, to do sort of very menial tasks um, in a way that we haven't quite sort of gotten to that that point in medicine. We're still seeing um, status hierarchies, but 
physicians are still able to practice as full, full, um, fully licensed pr- physicians um, in, in the profession. Another example, again, is near and dear to our hearts, um, of course, is academia, right? And so we're seeing very similar patterns where there's an oversupply of, of very well-qualified PhDs um, training in different kinds of programs, of course. And so we see those horizontal hierarchies emerge. Um, and, uh, you know, with the the ever sort of uh, expanding um, supply of contingent faculty positions, right? There's an ever smaller number of tenure track positions, the highly coveted sort of tenure track positions, um, and the expansion of contingent faculty, which effectively create those vertical hierarchies that I, I write about um, in the book. Um, and I, I note that much like in medicine, the elite in academia wouldn't exist were it were it not for the contingent faculty that are doing a lot of the teaching, right? That then frees up um, time for for tenure track faculty to do research. Similarly, in medicine, you know, if it were not for these international and osteopathic medical graduates filling positions in underserved areas, in places, geographic areas that um, USMDs don't want to practice, um, and in fields of medicine that USMDs don't want to fill. Um, if it weren't for those those non-USMDs, then we would not have a USMD elite in the same way that we do now that's then able to fill these, these more prestigious um, positions in, in the profession. And so there's a real parallel there with, with, um, with the academy. Um, and of course, there's a parallel with, um, you know, within the horizontal hierarchies between uh, PhDs, right, where top tier graduates are coming from highly, uh, you know, well-resourced programs that have a lot of status behind them, a long history of status behind them, um, and and simply have access to more resources during training, which then can make those graduates more competitive on the job market um, than those uh, trainees that are studying in, in less well-resourced, maybe less well-known programs. Um, so we see we see quite a few parallels, I think, in other professions. Um, and I'm hopeful that the book will will have you know an impact and have have um, be able to speak to some of those processes beyond medicine. And now I want to talk about the afterword that you um, so graciously shared with me uh, with the with a change made to this testing process and uh, changing from a, a score to a pass or fail. Uh, what implications do you think this change, this modification in one of the major tests taken in, by medical doctors or aspiring medical doctors might have on the practice and may have on residency placement? Yeah, this was a massive change that happened while the book was in production. Um, and so, you know, I was really fortunate to be able to put together this afterward um, before the book went to press. Um, but yeah, effectively, you know, I, as you know, Michael, I spend much of the book really pushing back against this illusion of meritocracy in medicine, um, that, that, that the reason why we have this status separation um, may in part be due to merit, um, but it's certainly not the whole story. And the part that may be due to merit is tied to this licensing exam. And so um, the, the United States Medical Licensing Exam, step one, it's a three-step exam, um, that step one exam is one of the single most important determinants of who gets, um, of, of really what type of residency program an applicant can match to. And, you know, what I found was that for the most part, non-USMDs um, were not seriously considered 
Um, in fact, much of the applications from non-USMDs would be discarded without review um, from Stonewood University Hospital. Um, but there were a handful of exceptions. Um, between six and 12 applicants every year were considered from the pool of non-USMDs. Um, and really, there were two things that would help them uh, escape the chopping, ch chopping block, if you will. Um, the first was scoring astronomically high on the U.S. MLE. And by, by astronomically high, I mean two standard deviations above the national mean. Um, so scoring a 270 is, um, I believe, in the 99th percentile, and it's uh, you know, really going above and beyond what the average uh, USMD candidate would do. Um, uh, and so really sort of setting an applicant apart. The other piece of it is, is goes back to what you mentioned earlier, and that was social networks. So if an applicant had scored in the 99th percentile on this exam and came with um, the endorsement of a known faculty member, someone who was known to the Stonewood program, um, is saying that this person was better than any American graduate that they had ever seen, then that might uh, lead them to consider this person potentially for an interview at Stonewood University Hospital. So, so to bring this back to the change that happened la you know, last week or the week before, to step one, one of my concerns is that making step one pass fail could potentially restrict that very small but existent window or pathway, nonetheless, um, to competitive residencies for non-USMDs. And what it might do is effectively, by reducing the two aspects that might get someone an, inter an interview, scoring astronomically high on step one and having um, social networks, it, it might then place more emphasis on those informal resources like social networks um, for getting non-USMDs in the door at certain at certain competitive programs, um, which might further restrict, um, you know, opportunities for non-USMDs and might, and might eventually exacerbate segregation in the profession. Now, a lot of program uh, directors and, and um, pundits within medicine have remarked in, in the weeks after the decision was announced that in all likelihood, what's going to happen is that step one is just going to get replaced by step two. Um, step two, uh, the clinical knowledge portion of step two is, is the um, more clinically relevant cousin, if you will, um, of step one. Step one focuses mostly on basic sciences. Um, so it remains to be seen whether that new, that other test really becomes the most important factor now, uh, if it replaces step one as being the most important factor for determining who gets into residency. Um, currently, not all residency programs require step two before applying to residency, so that may very well change. Um, but, you know, I think I think one of the main concerns about this uh, this new introduction of a pass-fail step one um, is, you know, I, I worry that it won't necessarily change. Even if we get rid of step one, we replace it with step two, um, it's not going to necessarily ameliorate things for non-USMDs. Um, things might stay status quo or they might worsen, depending on what the implications are for what might be helpful for getting USM, non-USMDs, I'm sorry, a foot in the door at some of these competitive programs. You know, I, uh, I'm part of the Society for the Study of Social Problems, and the, our upcoming conference is, is about small wins. And I try to be optimistic as a sociologist, but uh, it's difficult to be an optimist when seeing the underlying structural forces that 
create oppression in society. So, um, yeah, looking at that, and my response to your email was 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 very pessim- pessimistic. Yeah, you know, I I hate to be the bearer of bad news, and I also worry that that's a bit of an occupational hazard as a sociologist. Um, you know, we're we're painfully aware of the enduring social structures that that lend. Uh, you know, durability to inequality. Um, I think, you know, I I do think that change is possible. um, But I think that in order to affect change in a way that's most likely to actually um, work in the long run is to target social structures. And those are difficult to target, particularly when those social structures are not rules or policies, because you know, you'll you'll note that I, I make the case. This is part of the puzzle of studying these two programs. That this segregation nationwide uh, across programs, there's no policy that says that any hospital has to prioritize USMDs or even American citizens, for that matter. And so, in some ways, if there was a policy, it's, it's some ways in some ways straightforward to change it. What we're really talking about here is changing social norms and social um, beliefs. Um, status beliefs within the profession. Um, And that's very difficult to do because it would come at the expense potentially of uh, USMD dominance, right? Um, I think, you know, if if we're continuing to rely on, as we do and as we have since the 1950s, international medical graduates and osteopathic medical graduates, you know, I think that as a nation, we ought to, you know, give them the opportunity to compete um, alongside USMDs for access to, you know, the, to all kinds of residency positions. And I think that would be in the best interest of the healthcare system, right, which in some ways has fallen by the wayside, I think, um, in conversations about how to allocate residency positions. You know, do we want the best people qualified, um, no matter where they're trained, do we want the best people filling, um, you know, much needed residency positions, or do we want to continue um uh, prioritizing USMDs, and there are, there are plenty of good reasons that respondents gave me for wanting to do that, in, including, you know, wanting to protect the nation's own trainees, um, wanting to give back to Medicare, which funds residency training, all of which are good, um, I think, good good reasons for for prioritizing USMDs. My concern is that that prioritization happens informally. Um, again, no policies or, or procedures that require programs to give priority explicitly to non to USMDs. And so, what ends up happening is that if they if those USMDs end up in the top positions, it gets assumed that it's because they're actually the best trainees and they've worked harder and have been more dedicated than non USMDs. When in fact, it is probably more a reflection of status biases and status beliefs within the profession. Um, so really, you know, I think I think change is possible. I think we would have to change social norms within medicine um, or at the very least make some of those norms more transparent and perhaps more formalized so that the rules of the game are clear to everybody um, in a way that doesn't lead non-USMDs to blame themselves or for USMDs to blame non-USMDs. Um, for being less motivated, less intelligent, less hardworking when they're not able to access those top positions in the profession. And to create an equal playing field, or at least a more yeah. equal playing field for all to advance in their profession because scores alone and going to an M- a USMD and non-USMD is not enough to uh, verify 
the quality of doctor that is going through these programs. That's right. And, you know, if we compare scores between non-USMDs and USMDs, um, what we find is that, at least in internal medicine, um, international medical graduates score just as highly as USMDs score on their step one exam back when it was a three-digit score. Um, Actually, if you parse that further, um, non-US citizen international medical graduates outscore U.S. citizens of all stripes, be they international medical graduates, uh, USMDs, or DOs. Um, And so from a pure score perspective, right, we're not seeing massive differences. Um, Also, when we look at quality of care, right, so if we just compare the quality of care offered between um, USMDs and non-USMDs, studies dating back to the 1970s have consistently found um, either equal quality of care being offered by non-USMDs compared to USMDs, or in a recent study that came out of Harvard a few years ago, higher quality of care being proffered by international medical graduates as opposed to USMDs, right? So um, so again, it, it brings us back to pressing questions, in my opinion, about what the healthcare system needs and whether the profession is catering to the public's needs by filling positions with the most qualified individuals or whether it's catering to its own needs um, in a way that, you know, that is uh, really designed to reward USMDs in the most maximal way possible. And potentially just reproducing the social structure through uh, passing the torch down to the, uh, to the next generation of individuals who are already part of the good old boy club. Exactly. Exactly. But in some ways, it's more insidious, right? Because the process isn't transparently about sponsorship. The process is supposed to be about meritocracy. And as a, as a result, it gets legitimated and, and gets perpetuated um, in a way that I think is, is perhaps even more disconcerting than, you know, back in the 1950s, Oswald Hall wrote about, you know, very formal types of sponsorship in the profession, whereby, you know, specialists were tapped at an early age and were sort of sponsored into the profession by, by specialists in certain hospitals. That was kind of the way things were. The advent of the match program um, tried to do away with some of those formal sponsorship arrangements and tried to level the playing field. So now what we have is an unlevel playing field. Um, that is being disguised, if you will, as a level playing field. Yes. So where does this take you next? That's, that's the big question always, right? Right. Um, well, so um, my next work is going to actually stem from a puzzling finding from this current book. Um, for all that USMDs are high status and have access to you know, the most elite positions within medicine and the most well-remunerated positions within medicine, they were also the most unhappy of all the residents that I spoke to. Um, the disillusionment at Stonewood was palpable. A lot of the residents spoke of uh, a so-called million-dollar mistake associated with going to medical school. A lot of them would not advise their peers to do it all over again. Um, and so that left me puzzled, right? These are the highest status people in the profession. They seem to have it all, and they're the most unhappy. And so what is going on? Um, and, you know, burnout, of course, within medicine is a massive problem. Burnout rates among trainees in particular um, have reached between 50 and 60 percent. 50 and 60 percent of trainees in medicine um, report feeling burnt out. Um, and so there's this broader puzzle, to me anyway, about what is it about the medical profession that is causing so many physicians to get sick? 
could it be related to some of the expectations inherent to the social contract um, that I've you know discovered through this through this process of research? Um, what is it about medical education in particular that might be leading to unwittingly leading to training um, an, a burnt out workforce? What are some of the professional norms, unspoken and spoken, um, about what it means to be a good doctor that could be contributing to some of these broader outcomes that have been well documented within medicine? Um, and so in my next project, I'm really hoping to bring, again, a, a very sociological lens to bear on uh, a problem that's all the rage right now in medicine, uh, the burnout problem, um, but really to look at it from a completely different perspective, I think, than what is it's currently being looked at. Physicians uh, are, are, are very adept at looking at, uh, at, at medical problems, health problems from a highly individual lens, right? That's, that's in some ways how they're trained to think. Um, and that's important, right? I think it is important to consider the, the individual determinants of burnout and how uh, we might administer individual level solutions to those problems. As a sociologist, of course, I'm interested in um, in the interplay between structure and agency. And so what I hope to do is bring a sociological lens to bear, um, bringing the tools and methods of medical sociology, um, exploring massive macro changes that have been occurring in the profession, like the introduction of the EHR. Um, like changes to um, to professional autonomy that have all been theorized about in medical sociology, um, but then bringing them to bear on individual provider well-being, which hasn't yet been done in, in, in medical sociology. And so the next project is, is hopefully going to be another ethnography um, where I spend time observing trainees at all levels of, at, at, at all different phases of the medical training life course, starting with pre-meds, all the way up to fully trained attending physicians um, to, to really critically look at what it is about medical education, um, professional norms, and a hidden curriculum within medicine that could be contributing to some of these burnout outcomes. And that'll be interesting to bring in the understand uh, more how the social contract while in medical school brings everybody up and keeps everybody into uh, in the system until they are placed mm -hmm. in the job, which in which case they they uh, have a high burnout rate. Yeah, I mean, you know, some of my respondents described the social contract as a double-edged sword, right? On the one hand, they knew that once they got into medical school, this, these were their words, not mine. You know, they they were they had made it, right? That they were virtually guaranteed a career, virtually guaranteed a residency position, and it was all downhill from there. In their words. Um, on the other hand, some respondents described the 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 kind of um, guarantees of of a career in medicine as a runaway train associated with a runaway freight train associated with um, the social contract. Once such that once they get into medical school, you know, there's no turning back. Um, there's a huge investment in terms of debt. There's a huge investment in terms of deferred gratification for you know what could be a decade or more. Um, and also a huge investment in terms of the um, the support and um, and respect and expectations from peers and family members, right? To go into medical school, there's huge expectations from one's community associated with that, um, making it, you know, a sense a career where there's there's no turning back. Um, it's very difficult to imagine a career outside of medicine. Um, some people do, and, and, and increasing numbers of folks are leaving medicine um, at a, an alarming rate, considering how many physicians were, were lacking in the country. Um, but I, I want to sort of tie that concept of the social contract and 
and its its benefits and pitfalls um, to un- better understanding some of these um, health outcomes happening among profession uh, among among the the medical profession um, to, to better to help better understand what really amounts to a mental health crisis in medicine right now. Yes, and that mental health uh, crisis in medicine, I think, and uh, in, in mental health in and itself, the mental health crisis that exists. At, in the profession of counseling as well. There, there's so many different uh, professions to study in this way, particularly. And, and I find it fascinating. And I look forward to reading your publication uh, and uh, learning as you learning about your research as you dig into this deeper through articles and, and other publications that this project might turn into. Yeah, thank you. The goal is to write a second book. So um, yes. hopefully uh, we could we could do this again in a couple of years once the next book comes out. <laughs> I look forward to that. And uh, please, uh, once you get a contract with a publisher, please send me an email. Sure. Yeah, I would be happy to. Excellent. Well, this, is a, this has been another episode of New Books in Sociology. Today I had a guest, Dr. Tanya Jenkins. Uh, on the show. Thank you again for joining, Dr. Jenkins. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a complete pleasure.